And as women, we go through so much that many people don't know, not even our closest community. And we fight so many unseen battles and still have the strength to endure all the hardship that comes our way. And I want people to know my story because it is very important to understand that the smile that you see on my face sometimes <laughs> has so much pain, struggle, worry, and strength behind it. And usually what meets the eye is not all there is. So while I went through my experience, I received a lot of judgment, a lot of mean words, heard a lot of gossip. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Anya Fombat, and I spark the heart conversations that challenge questionable cultural and societal norms that threaten the well-being of the African community. And I also share stories about growing up as Africans in Africa and in the diaspora. I strongly believe that normalizing open discussions and sharing experiences, whether good or bad, will not only make you find your voice, but will broaden your sense of purpose and empower others to do the same. So if you have ever tried challenging certain African cultural and societal doctrines, or if you have ever felt like it is about time that we confronted these issues in our African community and do better as a people, or even if you have always been interested in learning about the experiences of other Africans growing up in Africa and the diaspora, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Living African. Hello everyone, Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of Living African. So today I will be talking about a very personal topic and I will get a little bit vulnerable with you guys, which I really don't like doing, but that's the whole point of my podcast. So I will be sharing a personal story with you guys because I feel like if I am creating this platform for us to share our stories and the things that are being pushed under the rug, it only serves the right purpose for me to do the same. So I decided to share my story because I strongly believe that many women can relate to my experience as well as my fears as a woman, as a young African woman actually. And as women, we go through so much that many people don't know, not even our closest community. And we fight so many unseen battles and still have the strength to endure all the hardship that comes our way. And I want people to know my story because it is very important to understand that the smile that you see on my face sometimes (laughs) has so much pain, struggle, worry, and strength behind it. And usually what meets the eye is not all there is. So while I went through my experience, I received a lot of judgment, a lot of mean words, heard a lot of gossip, and even some family members told me that I was testing God by not having children when they wanted, I guess. But that shouldn't be our focus for today. My story is exclusive to me and my experiences have made me who I am today. And I am extremely grateful for the journey I have had so far. And I also have here with me my OBGYN, Dr. Equo, who has been here before. And, you know, we spoke about the infertility episode with her. And she's here with me to provide scientific insight and advice to certain parts of my story. And this is for the main purpose of, you know, enabling other women to fully understand certain things pertaining to their own experience and also know what exactly to expect or demand from their health provider if they have the same experience. So to every woman out there, you may have a different story than my story, but I really hope that we can relate somehow and be more open to sharing our experiences with one another. And most importantly, I really hope that we can learn to be more kind 
and show empathy to one another because we are all fighting battles that nobody knows about. So here's how the story goes. In 2015, I found out I was unexpectedly pregnant. So it definitely wasn't planned. It was truly a time of my life where I was making so many transitions. I just graduated from pharmacy school, starting to take my board exams. I I just had a new job in a different state. And, you know, the last thing that came to mind was for me to be pregnant. But, hey, I got pregnant. So how I found out was really funny because I started complaining of, you know, severe pain on my lower right side of my abdomen, which is also called the right lower quadrant. And I never felt that kind of pain before. So I decided to go see an OBGYN, a doctor specializing in women's health. And um, I actually had a history of ovarian cysts. So when I saw the doctor, I consulted with her and she recommended that I go on birth control pills, which actually has been proven to help with the cysts. But then before that, she suggested that I do a pregnancy test just to make sure I wasn't pregnant because if I was pregnant, then there's no need to be on birth control pills, which also prevent pregnancy. So I did the test and it came out positive and I was actually in utter shock. I mean, I was literally going through so much in my life with school and my exams and every other thing. And the last thing that I was really ready for was to start a family. So I was pretty devastated. So I eventually moved to the new state and which was about an hour and a half away. And I eventually followed up still with that same OBGYN. So I drove back and forth to see her and I did a couple of scans and ultrasounds and they discovered that I was pregnant. I wasn't only pregnant with one baby, but with two babies. So I was pregnant with twins, but as if that wasn't enough, I had a monomono pregnancy, which monomono just basically means monochorionic pregnancy, which Dr. Equa, who's here, will definitely talk about that. But this is a rare type of pregnancy, and it has been shown to occur in less than 0.1% of all pregnancies. So to say that my walk came crashing down is definitely an understatement. I wasn't sure if I was ready for two babies, but that wasn't as scary as the high-risk pregnancy that I was about to experience. So it was such a very difficult time for me. And considering all the risks involved, it was very, very important for me to have an OBGYN who was closer to me instead of me driving an hour and a half, two hours away to see the old OBGYN But another problem that I ran into was that no OBGYN wanted to take me as their patient because of the high-risk pregnancy that I had. So all of these things were very shocking for me to learn about. And that's why when I was reflecting on this journey, and I really wanted to share this journey with you guys, I wanted to bring in someone who has a lot of expertise in women's health and in issues like this to really give insight and answer some of the questions that you may have had at the back of your mind after hearing my story so far. And that's why I had Dr. Equo come in here. So I just want to welcome you here again, Dr. Equo. And I thank you for taking the time to to speak with me on this very sensitive topic and personal topic. So um, I just want to welcome you again to the platform. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing well, actually. Thank you. And again, I'm Dr. Temi Tope Equo, board certified OBGYN. I practice in the medical center in Houston, Texas at the Women's Hospital of Texas. Thank you. So we're just going to dive into a few things that I mentioned in my story. I just want to give our listeners like 
scientific definitions of a few things. So I'm just okay. going to start. I had mentioned that I had a history of ovarian cysts. So yes. what exactly are ovarian cysts? How common are they and how do they affect pregnancy or fertility? So our ovaries are where our eggs are harbored. And so an ovarian cyst literally just means you have so people think cysts are bad things, but backstory is that we as ovulating women create cysts on our ovaries every month because that's yeah. where we ovulate from. So a cyst is just where the ovary has created a small sac within the ovary that's typically fluid filled. And tip when it's an ovulatory or follicular cyst, it harbors a very small egg within the cyst wall. And so each month around, you know, halfway through your cycle, most women, it's about 14 days after the first day of menses, you ovulate, which is when the cyst ruptures and secretes the egg in an attempt to allow you to conceive. Uh, so there's many different kinds of cysts. Most are benign. Some can be precancerous or cancerous, but most of the time in young ovulating women, they're just follicular cysts that each month resolve. If you don't get pregnant and another cyst is recreated from month to month, that's just the normal, that's the normal cycle for a premenopausal woman, which is what we're discussing here. You right. can get, you know, nitty gritty and talk about all the different possible cysts that a woman can make on her ovaries, but that is beyond the scope of this conversation. Right. So at the end of the day, I tell my patients all the time, cysts on your ovaries are normal because that's typically where you ovulate from. If you ovulate and don't get pregnant, the cyst resolves and a new one reappears the next month. Right. So Obviously, if you're ovulating from month to month, that kind of cyst is not affecting your fertility. Kind of cysts that can affect your fertility are cysts that are due to other causes, which can typically don't resolve on their own and then require some kind of ovarian surgery. Mm -hmm. So if you have to have some kind of surgery on your ovary, of course, it diminishes the amount of eggs you have. And that's how that can affect fertility, which, like I said, a lot of that is beyond the scope of this conversation. Right. So long story short, when a person is told that they have cysts on their ovaries, you really have to dive deep and ask your provider what kind of cyst, because most of the time it's just a normal follicular cyst where you ovulate from month to month. Okay. Thank you very much for sharing that. You're welcome. And I mentioned that, you know, when I found out I had the twin pregnancy, it was the mono, they also said it was a mono-mono pregnancy. So mm -hmm. can you please explain what that is and, you know, the risk associated with it and, you know, if it can be avoided, you know, just everything, just a holistic overview of what a mono-mono pregnancy is. So monochorionic monoamniotic twin pregnancy. So you have several different types of pregnancies where people say, oh, I'm um, fraternal twins versus identical twins, which is not really medical terminology. How pre There's two different ways twin pregnancies can be created. So two eggs fertilized by two different sperms, those are typically what people refer to as fraternal twins because they're twins, but they don't look alike. So those are the twins that can be a boy and a girl or two girls or two boys, but they're not identical. A mono-mono twin means that one egg was fertilized by one sperm and then usually about 
day three to seven, somewhere about there, that's when that fertilized egg splits into two. Mm-hmm. And so that's how you see those twins that they look identical because they have the exact same genetic makeup because it was one egg fertilized by one sperm and they split very soon after development. And so you can see that lots of issues can arise with mono-mono twins because what it means is that they share a placenta and they share a amniotic sac. And so what an amniotic sac is what layman terms people refer to as my bag of water. So these twins are in the same quote unquote bag of water and they share the exact same placenta. They just have their own umbilical cords coming off of the, the same placenta versus the other type of twins where they have their own placenta and own sac. So literally two separate pregnancies just at the exact same time in the womb. Mm. So the reason mono mono twins are very high risk and you won't see very many generalist OBGYNs such as myself take care of them because they have lots of risk associated with those pregnancies and not just risk to baby but risk to mom. Mm -hmm. So some of the risk to the babies and I'm gonna throw out these terms but it's not to boggle you down with these terms they're just to kind of really go into why it is that they're so high risk and people say oh I want identical twins but a lot of times they don't realize what goes behind the scenes of taking care of these identical twins so there's one the biggest concern is what we call twin twin transfusion syndrome and that's where one of the twins starts essentially taking all of the nutrients from the other twin. And so you have one twin that is bigger and fatter than the other twin, which is much skinnier and is lacking blood supply because they have blood vessels that in the placenta are going between the two of them and it's shunting more of the nutrients to one twin. And so that's very, very high risk kind of issue that happens mostly in mono. It can't happen in die-die twins because they don't share a placenta. Mm -hmm. So it happens in mono-mono twins. A lot of times it can lead to fetal demise of one or both of the twins. Then there's another one where it's called TAPS. So twin anemia polycythemia sequence. So when one of the twins is much is anemic, whereas the other twin gets, again, most of the nutrients of the pregnancy because of you can have cord entanglement because, you know, they both both of their umbilical cords are in the same amniotic sac. Mm-hmm. So one of the twins, unfortunately, can get tangled in the cord, which can lead to um, fetal demise. Yeah. You can have fetal demise of one twin, which can cause fetal demise of the other twin. You can have congenital anomalies of one or both of the twins. So those are just a few of the fetal risk of mono-mono twins. And then when it comes to maternal complications, you can have gestational hypertension, which is high blood pressure caused by the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So you can have gestational hypertension or preeclampsia. The mother can have gestational diabetes as well. So as you can see, these kind of pregnancies come with so many potential risk factors that most generalists aren't going to take care of these pregnancies because you need to be at a center that is able if issues arise to treat and manage these pregnancies. And typically, mono-mono twins don't go to term. Most of the time, they're delivered between 32 and 34 weeks. Wow. Well, thank Mm -hmm. you so much for sharing that. 
And while you were talking, it just got me thinking, is that also how conjoint twins like could potentially be formed like through the mono-mono? Yeah, so it's a pathway and, you know, day of fertilization is day zero. And so depending on when the egg ends, that is fertilized by one sperm, when it separates, that's what determines when it's, whether it's a mono-mono pregnancy or a conjoined pregnancy. And I, I believe it's, so like I said, for mono-mono, it's typically after about day nine, if I remember correctly. If they separate after day nine, that is what results in the conjoined twins. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you very much. This is really the first time that I have really had that scientific explanation, like in depth about mm-hmm. what kind of risk I could potentially be in because at that time I just cannot understand why because when I moved to my new environment I called and called every single OBGYN around there and nobody not a single person wanted to take me you know and I mean all I knew was that there was a high risk of me having a miscarriage as well you know in the early mm-hmm. weeks of the pregnancies that's why I really wanted to get someone who was closer to me that I could go see you know at any time and stuff like that so now that you have explained it it kind of gives me like better insight at the kind of risk that I my life was in and also the risk that you know my babies at that time were in so you know considering like I mentioned considering every other thing that was going on with the hecticness of my life It wasn't really long before I started feeling so much pain in my lower abdomen that I think it was about weak. And sorry, I just wanted to clarify, I'm just very anal and don't want to spread misinformation. So when it comes to separation, there are four types of twins. There's die-die, mono-die, mono-mono, and conjoined. Mm -hmm. And so die-die twins, typically they separate at day one to three after fertilization. Mono-die separates day three four to eight mono mono is day eight to 13 and then conjoined twins is if they separate after day 13 okay so i just wanted to clarify that for everyone listening that there are four types of twins and it depends on when they separate after fertilization will determine what type of twins they are okay Thank you very much. Yeah. So as I was saying, like it wasn't before long until I started feeling so much pain in my lower abdomen, you know, and that was about week. I think that should have been like almost week 12. And that's when I really started to, I started realizing that I was bleeding heavily. Now, the first thing I did was I went to the ER, I rushed to the ER and they diagnosed me with an incomplete miscarriage, which basically meant that the first baby had passed on and out of me. And the, the second baby, they could still get a heartbeat. So the second baby was still alive. And then they sent me home, but I wasn't, I didn't stop bleeding, you know. So I, I went back home and I was still bleeding. I was hoping that, you know, I would stop bleeding by the, you know, maybe the end of the next day or, or by the next day. And so by the next day, I actually bled so much that, you know, I could not even stand up. My heart rate just went up all the way. I mean, the normal heart rate is from 60 to 100 beats per minute, but mine was like way higher than 100 beats per minute. Like whenever I stood up, I was just so dizzy. I couldn't even do anything. I literally spent most of my day in the toilet because I, w- I started bleeding so bad. Like I couldn't even like the blood could not even contain the pad that I was wearing could not contain the blood that was oozing out of my body. So, I mean, I was rushed to the ER again, and then they discovered that the second baby had passed on out, and but I still kept bleeding. You know, they gave me some fluids, and then sent me home again without stabilizing me. 
you know so at this point I personally knew that something was not right because I wasn't supposed to keep bleeding that way they had to have at least helped me to stop the bleeding and even when I insisted but nobody just wanted to hear what I had to say you know they just sent me back home so by the fourth day I had lost so much blood that you know, I had to be taken back to the ER. This was all within one week. So I went to the ER three times. And by this time, it's like I lost so much blood that they measured my hemoglobin level and it was about seven. Now for women, the normal range is about 12 to 15.5. So I was literally, I had lost so much blood and I had to be given two bags of blood. And then that's when they made the decision to take me for dilation and curatage surgery, which is the DNC surgery. And that actually finally stopped the bleeding. Now, I just want to bring you back in, uh, Dr. Echo, so we can, of course, explain a few things that I just said. So what are classic signs and symptoms of a miscarriage? And when should women, you know, check with a doctor or go to the ER during pregnancy if they have certain symptoms that could potentially signify a miscarriage? Typically, the signs and symptoms of a miscarriage are exactly what you had. Lower abdominal pain feels like severe menstrual cramps in addition to heavy, bright red vaginal bleeding like a cycle. So a lot of people are unaware that you can have a little bit of spotting at points in time in pregnancy. That could just be due to irritation of the cervix or what we call postcoital bleeding. So bleeding after intercourse just due to the how vascular the cervix is. So if it's just spotting or light bleeding, typically that's not a sign of miscarriage. But heavy, bright red bleeding like a cycle, in addition to severe pelvic pain or cramping, those are the signs of um, a possible miscarriage, which you should be concerned and call your doctor or go to the emergency room. Right. Thank you. So talking about the emergency room, now I had asked a few people, you know, why I was being sent home all the time when I wasn't stable. Some people were for the decision of the hospital. Some people were against, you know, some people said, you know, sometimes they send you back home because especially if it's a twin pregnancy, it's like they eventually the bleeding typically stops. So they don't have to, I mean, it's hard for them to determine what stability is at that point. They want to see how much more you bleed. But then again, you just can't sleep in the ER. You have to go home. But other people said they did not have to send me back home until they made sure that I stopped bleeding. So what was your opinion on that and why I was being sent home and if that was even the right thing to do just to help patients in the future to be their own advocate if something like that happens? So I don't like to say if it was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, because I wasn't there, I didn't have your chart. I didn't evaluate you. I don't know how heavy your bleeding was, what other things they, that were included in that physician's decision-making. So I'm going on the record. I can't say if it was right or if it was wrong, but what I can say is that typically, yes, with twin pregnancies, sometimes not as likely as in a mono, mono, pregnancy because like I said same sac same placenta Mm -hmm. but more likely in a pregnancy where they have their own sac and own placenta you can unfortunately have a miscarriage of one twin and take the other twin to full term and so when you tell me your story 
my inclination is that maybe they weren't aware of what kind of twin pregnancy it was in fact. And they were thinking, oh, okay, maybe you miscarried the first twin with hopes of you being able to, the, your cervix reconstituting. So your cervix going back to close in an attempt and hopefully carrying the other twin to, um, to term so that you essentially hoping that this carriage stops itself. But again, I wasn't there. I don't know what information they had and why they were making the decisions they were making. Right. So now I talked about the DNC surgery as well, which mm-hmm. is, you know, was typically done to stop the bleeding. But how you define a DNC surgery and what are the benefits or risks associated with that? So a DNC is, like you said, it's a dilation and curatage, typically treatment of what's called an incomplete abortion. And when we say abortion, that is the medical Medical. terminology for miscarriage. And so an incomplete abortion is where your body has started to miscarry, but for some reason it hasn't completed the process. So your cervix is dilating, dilated rather, and you're bleeding heavily. So incomplete abortions are a medical emergency where typically have to take a patient to the operating room to assist in the completion of emptying out the uterus. In your issue, however, you said that twin B still had a heartbeat. So it puts physicians in a very difficult predicament Mm -hmm. because if you do a DNC on a fetus that is still alive, that is you essentially performing an elective abortion, which is what people know as abortion. So let's just, you know, comment on your situation is kind of very, it's it's very, like you said, is, is not very common, but again, most incomplete abortions, that's how we treat them. Because if you leave the mom and their cervix is dilated, they're bleeding, they could bleed to death. Other reasons we do a DNC is if a woman has what's called a missed abortion, So they just come to the clinic, you know, for their routine prenatal visit. You go to get heart tones and you realize that the baby's no longer has fetal cardiac activity. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you know, they're not having any signs of a miscarriage, no bleeding, no pain. Their cervix is closed. You can offer them to give their body time to see if their body will do it on their own. You can give them the option for medication to induce their body into a miscarriage or some people would prefer just to get it done over and done with. And those are the people that opt to go for a DNC. At the end of the day, there's risk with each of them. If you take the medication, granted, the pros are you don't have to be put to sleep. You don't have to undergo a surgery, but you could you run the risk of the medication not working or it working but incompletely working where you'd end up having to have a DNC. The risk of a DNC is it is surgery. It's major surgery where you have to be put to sleep. There's the potential risk of poking a hole in your uterus during the procedure because your uterus is very thin at that point. And so if you're not careful, you can poke a hole in the uterus or you could, some people could be so aggressive during the DNC that it could cause scar tissue, which could affect future pregnancies. Then, but the the benefits are you are put to sleep. You don't have to go through that process and deal with it, you know, deal with the pain and the bleeding at home. So there are risks and benefits of each, each procedure. Right. Thank you very much for sharing that. And I mean, that's very great information, and hopefully we will touch back on this, you know, down the line 
within my story. Now, obviously, this entire experience was extremely traumatizing for me, you know, and I, it, it actually made me terrified to get pregnant again. Honestly, I was just like, you know, I really don't want to have to go through such an experience, you know, but then it wasn't until about last year when my husband and I decided that, you know, we wanted to try to get pregnant again. But however, it suddenly became very challenging, which was very surprising to me because considering how easy it was for me to get pregnant before, I was really shocked. I was like, huh, I thought it was very easy for me to get pregnant. I thought I was very fertile. I mean, I got pregnant with twins when I didn't even want to. But then again, after having had the conversation with you and Dr. Plenty on the infertility series, I now have more insight in hindsight to know that just because you get pregnant once it doesn't mean that you you can get pregnant again there's something like secondary infertility so now another thing that really bothered me was that you know i mean in the two episodes ago when my family and i sat down to talk about my brother who was a special needs child you know the 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 issues and the you know the trauma that my family went through with him it also kind of made me nervous about having children as well because I always had this thing at the back of my mind like what if I have a child and the child goes through what my brother went through you know so this is one of the fears that I was battling with internally so but then even though we were trying to get pregnant I still you know had these fears at the back of my mind you know and what about whether my baby would be healthy and especially considering you know the monomono pregnancy that I had had in the past so we still went ahead and tried you know we enjoyed the process while it lasted until I decided, you know, to see you. And that's how I even came about meeting you. And that was probably one of the best decisions ever. <laughs> so we met you. And so that was early 2021. And, you know, I told you of our journey and everything. Trying to conceive and you told us about, you know, getting an HSG. And that was the very first time I heard the word HSG. I had no idea, you know. And that was basically to see if there was any obstruction in my fallopian tubes and so when I did the HSG and I did the procedure and the results came back indicating that, you know, both my tubes were blocked and there was really no cause as to why, you know, I, I mean, being the inquisitive person that I am, I did all kinds of research. I asked all kinds of questions like what are the possible, you know, causes, but at that point, nothing was really set on fine print as to why, you know, it was, it wasn't like a scar tissue or adhesions or nothing, at least to my understanding at that point, you know, and based on my conversation with you, you had referred me to, you know, a fertility clinic to go see a fertility doctor. And then you also ordered my husband to do a semen analysis. And so his semen analysis came back normal. You know, and the fertility doctor's advice was for me to do like an operative hysteroscopy, which basically was to confirm the HSG results. You know, as she said, sometimes, you know, when they do the first HSG, you know, sometimes it could be a false positive. And also if there was any confirmation, then if there were any issues, then that operative hysteroscopy could definitely, well, not definitely, could also correct any issues that could be found in the tube, like flush it out or whatever. And then if it still doesn't help, then that's when she recommended that we could potentially do an IVF. So, I mean, at that point, like every, like Google and every kind of health portal or health resource online was my best friend. I did all kinds of research, research and 
tapped into all kinds of resources, which probably wasn't the best idea. But I mean, being a health professional, I knew what to take and what not to take, at least to the best of my knowledge. But then I, I know that, you know, atopic pregnancy could potentially happen, especially in people who have blocked tubes. So that was my greatest fear because I was like, yeah, even if they do the operative hysteroscopy, now, what if I conceive and I have an atopic pregnancy? I actually know two people who had atopic pregnancies and they died, you know. So that was another fear of mine and I was super terrified, you know. So it made me really nervous and I just told the fertility doctor, I told her, I was like, you know what? I don't care what the outcome of this hysteroscopy is. I just want to do an IVF. I mean, my husband and I already spoke about that and we were ready to go forth with an IVF, you know. So that's where you know, we made the decision to now start planning the IVF, which we will go further into. But I just want to back up a little bit and let you give a little bit more insight about certain terms that I, you know, mentioned, like going to start first with, you know, the HSG, like what actually is an HSG and when is it recommended? So HSG means a histocalpingogram, and that essentially is an x-ray of the uterus that is performed at the same time that dye is being injected through the cervix into the uterus. And so HSGs are part of an infertility workup. So when someone comes in, says they've been trying for X amount of months and unable to get pregnant. And like we discussed last time, infertility is inability to conceive for 12 months in someone less than 35 or six months in someone greater than 35. And so infertility workup includes a semen analysis for the man to ensure that he actually is creating sperm, mm -hmm. make sure the sperm is normal, make sure the sperm is mobile. Mm -hmm. So that's called motility. Make sure that he, he doesn't have a um, low sperm count because just because you ejaculate does not mean you have a sperm in yeah. your semen. So that's the male's part. And then the female part, you know, we have lots of different things that go into being able to conceive. So you want to make sure your ovaries are actually in fact working and you're ovulating from month to month. And we have blood tests for that. Then you want to look at the uterus, typically using an ultrasound to make sure you don't have any fibroids or anything that is making your uterus anatomically abnormal. And then the HSG is to look at the cavity. So to make sure the inside of the uterus is shaped normally and make sure that the tubes are open because the tubes need to be patent in order for the egg to meet the sperm. So that's where the HSG comes into play. And like you said, yes, tubal occlusion. So when you have blocked tubes on the HSG, it will appear on the x-ray that dye does not go through the tubes. And that can be caused by many different things. A person can have tubal spasm at so irritation of the fallopian tube at the time the dye is being injected so that on x-ray or on the imaging will appear as the tubes are occluded or it can be that there's an obstruction so something that's blocking the tubes but it's not actually that the tubes aren't patent or you could in fact have actual tubal occlusion where both tubes are in fact blocked because of typically it can be because of fluid or be from previous infection. So there's many reasons that a, someone could have tubal occlusion on an HSG. Right. And actually, I had both my tubes were actually blocked. 
which, mm. you know, was definitely traumatizing because I know some women, If I mean, you don't need both tubes to be open to be able to conceive, right? You can also conceive if you have one tube open, you know, but from, for me, it was both tubes that were blocked, which is pretty devastating to learn, you know. So now what is an operative hysteroscopy and how different is that from a diagnostic hysteroscopy? So hysteroscopy, for those who don't know, is where you go. It can be done in the clinic or out in outpatient surgery center or in the operating room where you go in through the cervix with a camera and you look at the inside of the uterus. So diagnostic just means you're just going in, you're looking, taking pictures, you're not doing anything and you're coming out. An operative hysteroscopy is the exact same thing. You're using the same kind of camera. You're going in through the service, looking at the uterus, but you're actually doing something. You're performing some kind of procedure, whether it be removing a polyp, removing fibroids. So that's the only difference is diagnostic. You're just looking, taking pictures. Operative, you're actually performing some kind of procedure. Okay. Thank you very much. And now I mentioned my great, one of my greatest fears, which was potentially having an ectopic pregnancy. So what is that and what are the signs and symptoms and the risk factors and when should women really be concerned about that? So an ectopic pregnancy is any pregnancy that is located outside of the uterus. Um, so there's many types of ectopic pregnancies. It can be located in the fallopian tubes, in the ovaries, in the abdomen, in the liver. They're very rare. Liver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. How did egg find its way there? <laughs> exactly. Who knows? How did the egg and the sperm find their way there? But yes, absolutely. Random. They had an episode of that on um, Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> Someone who had a liver ectopic. And Whoa. it, in fact, is it, it's possible. It's very rare, but it is possible. But risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy are people who've A, had an ectopic pregnancy in the past, or B, have some kind of scarring in their fallopian tubes. But a lot of times, it's a spontaneous thing that ectopic pregnancies happen. And it goes back to signs and symptoms are pain. So if you start, you know, you start having severe pain and it could be your left or your right side. Like I said, the ectopics can be in multiple places. So sometimes the pain can be um, really vague. You're having pain and they can't figure out why. And, you know, when you go to the emergency room, every they should on all menstruating women do a pregnancy test, but typically how ectopics are found are you go in for some pain or some irregular bleeding. They do a pregnancy test. They find out you're pregnant. Then they do an ultrasound and they notice that there's no pregnancy in the uterus, but you are in fact have a positive pregnancy test. That is typically the number one inclination that someone has an ectopic pregnancy. Right. Thank you very much. And so I mentioned that I opted, my husband and I opted to go for an IVF procedure. Can you just quickly tell us what that is and when it it is advised? And also, why is there still a stigma surrounding IVF procedures? And why do women really shy away from doing it or just talking about it, especially in our African community? 
So IVF is vitro fertilization, where it means that you take the egg and the, the take the egg from the woman. You take the sperm from the man in a dish. You fertilize the egg. You allow it to develop for a certain amount of um, days before you now re-implant it into the woman's womb. The reason for, in your case, that was recommended was that's the only way to bypass the tubes. Because if the tubes are blocked, like I said previously, there's no way for the egg and the sperm to meet. So you have to essentially force them to meet outside of the body and then put them back. IVF is part of the assisted reproductive technology. I can't say who it's more beneficial for than who it isn't. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because there's many different reasons someone might opt for IVF. In a situation where both tubes are blocked, well, IVF is the only option. But some people, they've tried other, some people who are dealing with infertility for other reasons have tried other forms of assisted reproductive technology, which didn't work for them. And so their last resort is IVF. So IVF, it really is patient-based depending on the cause of infertility. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much. So, you know, talking about the IVF again and my whole story with the hysteroscopy, we went on to set a date for that hysteroscopy and that was basically the same day where I was going to you know, start my medications to start the IVF process because I really wanted to start that as soon as possible since it took a couple of months. And so this, the doctor had told me that, you know, it was supposed to be the start of my next menstrual cycle, which is basically day one of my next period. And, you know, this whole experience was just pretty devastating. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if I had ever felt that much stress and anxiety, especially with the uncertainty of everything. But I really tried to you know, just focus on myself. Of course, I still went to, you know, Dr. Google, Dr. WebMD, <laughs> all those websites. But then again, you know, I, I, you know, I tried to build my relationship with God. I just was very, very, that's what I really built a close relationship with God. And I was very prayerful. I tried to, you know, relax and not let whatever was happening around me, you know, coming to me. I mean, my husband and I actually decided that we would not left, let our life stop because of our circumstances and we decided to just do things that brought us even close together and we continued our journey of trying to conceive so my period actually had to come on the first week of april and that was also when i had made an appointment to go to the fertility clinic but my period did not come and if there's one thing in my life that's constant it's my period like my period has never ever come late it has never ever not come on time. It always comes either one or two days early or it comes on time, never ever late. So this kind of got me a bit worried and you know, I waited another day and nothing came and then I had purchased some pregnancy test strips and tested to see if I was pregnant. On those strips, a double line meant that I was pregnant and a single line meant that I wasn't pregnant. So for some reason, the strips just did not have a double line or just maybe because I was not as patient enough because by the time he had two lines, supposedly had thrown it in the trash. So that evening I was still worried and I decided to, you know, take another test again. But this time I was very, really, really patient. And then, you know, I waited and then I, I mean, it, this time it didn't even take much long for the two lines to show up. And so I was like, huh, I could be pregnant. You know, I started thinking. So I went to the pharmacy, purchased an electronic pregnancy test and I repeated a test and I was actually pregnant, you know, and my husband and I, we were very shocked, though we were excited. And, 
we knew that then and there that it was nothing short of a miracle. And, you know, I remember coming to see you again. <laughs> I actually called your office and they're like, huh, interesting. You know, like I was like, yeah, I'm pregnant. I am not going back to the fertility clinic, you know, and I canceled my appointment with them as well. And, you know, it was really something that I have been bugging myself and asking, like, what must have gone on? But it was something that, you know, one of those things that cannot be explained. I know when I was doing some research on Google, they had mentioned that, you know, a very low percentage of women, when they have the HSG, as you had mentioned, is a dye that's inserted into the tube. Sometimes when the dye is coming out, it flushes, you know, whatever obstruction there is in the tube. So I'm thinking maybe that, you know, is what must have happened or that was just a miracle, you know. So this was basically the start of my pregnancy journey up to now and by the time this episode is aired out I'm very sure that the little mama will probably be a month old (laughs) by then you know but I just had some few questions regarding this experience you know I really wanted us to now talk about my pregnancy journey so far I personally did not have the regular symptoms of nausea or hyperemesis gravidum which is the severe vomiting is really not should not be a normal or expected symptom but what I really had the most was like the ligament or groin pain my goodness that has been a consistent experience throughout my pregnancy and also with the random bleeding which was basically very light bleeding at the start which kind of scared me but do you mind just giving some insight on that pain that you know I've been having and you know and and also maybe potentially common or uncommon symptoms in pregnancy so round ligament pain is lower abdominal pain lower back pain is something that's quite common as the pregnancy progresses typically more so in the second trimester around like 20-ish weeks and it's because the two round ligaments they're like suspenders that hold the uterus in place And so as your uterus starts to grow out of the pelvis towards the belly button, those ligaments are put on tension, which is what causes the round ligament pain. Some people have it more severe than others, but at the end of the day, it is a very common symptom during pregnancy. Like I said, some have it more severe than others. Some people need to have like pelvic physical therapy during their pregnancy to help with that pain and discomfort. Myself, I've had to have pelvic physical therapy this pregnancy, which I haven't had to have in other pregnancies due to uh, round ligament pain, um, pubic symphysis dysfunction. All Mm -hmm. of that is part of the growing Mm -hmm. your body does and the pelvis does as baby is growing to accommodate the pregnancy. And so typical you know, um, symptoms that people experience during pregnancy in the first trimester. It can be um, nausea, vomiting, breast tenderness, food aversion, which some people, they have food aversion to the point where they do lose weight. And a lot of times patients think it's concerning that they've lost weight in the first trimester. So it depends on how much weight you're losing and also how much vomiting you're doing, Mm -hmm. which determines is it normal or is it abnormal. In the second trimester, it's more just kind of the discomforts that we discussed. Third trimester, um, your appetite typically comes back in the second trimester, the nausea, the vomiting gets better. Your appetite comes back. You start to gain weight. Third trimester, a lot of times it's just the discomfort from the weight of the baby. So it can be the pelvic pressure, pelvic pain, lower back pain, obviously reflux because the pregnancy is now pushing on the stomach. So it makes it more 
difficult for your food to digest or for you to eat large meals. And if you force yourself to eat large meals, it doesn't digest as quickly, which leads to reflux. Some people can have shortness of breath when they're exerting themselves. Um, so there's lots of everyone's pregnancy is different. So I could talk for years yeah. about all the different symptoms that people have. But at the end of the day, if it's something that's concerning to you, always bring it up to your doctor so that they can determine whether it is a normal symptom of pregnancy or if it's something that needs to be investigated right. further. Thank you. So during this pregnancy experience, oh my God, I don't think I've ever been poked as many times as I have throughout this journey. I mean, I am literally immune to just the pokes, you know, and I know, you know, our audience for this podcast is primarily in Africa or at least to the Africans. And there are a lot of areas that have a huge lack of healthcare resources, especially for pregnant women. So, and they may not be able to accommodate all the intense exams and tests that we have the privilege of having here in America. So if there was like, maybe like three or four top main checkups that you would advise for a woman to have during pregnancy, what would they be? It would be the initial checkup where you get the ultrasound to solidify your due date because, you know, sometimes your due date is does not align with the one that is estimated from your last menstrual period. So, the, yes, the first um, the first appointment where you get your ultrasound and get your initial prenatal labs. And that is very important because your initial prenatal labs, we're checking for HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, syphilis, checking for anemia, checking for sickle cell trait, checking mm -hmm. for your blood type. All of those are very important because those results could weigh heavily on how your pregnancy outcomes. So that appointment is very important. Of course, we do appointments typically between 18 to 20 weeks, which is for the anatomy scan. That's very important. Yes, some places they might not have access to this, but if you do, it's important. And that's not a gender scan where you're like, ooh, let me find out the gender. Yeah. It's looking at all of the baby's organs to make sure everything is developing appropriately, making sure there's no anomalies. Because again, that can have significant bearing on the pregnancy. And the next appointment, so that's the second appointment that is very important. The third appointment that I would say is very important is where you get screened for gestational diabetes because some people, diabetes does not show up until you're pregnant. Yeah. And then you know, and then of course you want to make sure you're seen closer to term, make sure baby's growing appropriately, make sure your blood pressures are normal, make sure everything is just progressing as we want it to. Right. But very important are those three appointments that I mentioned. Those are very important not to miss. And then of course, it really depends on your person's pregnancy. Are there any other complications they're dealing with that will determine how frequently they're seen and what other appointments are very important for them not to miss. Right. Thank you very much. So right now I am actually nine months and I'm very, very close to my due date, less than a month away. <laughs> and, you know, the C-section versus vaginal delivery is one of the most important decisions to make. And so I just want to know what your thoughts are on both methods of delivery. And, you know, in our community, it's especially our mothers, they, they believe, you know, they did it vaginally. So we have no right to do it via C-section or whatever, even though C-section could come into place as a very huge necessity, depending on the, the risk, you know, that the mother or baby are in. But what do you think about both? And why do you think there's still so much bias against C-sections in our communities? So at the end of the day, 
C-sec, I can't tell you a C-section is better than a vaginal delivery or vice versa because, again, that goes to patient patient by patient basis. In some patients, there's no option for vaginal delivery because it's not safe for the mom or the baby. So going back to your story, in a patient who had mono-mono twins, if those were taken to term, you're not going to find anyone that's going to give you the option for a vaginal delivery mm-hmm. because... It's highly risky for the infants. But at the end of the day, like I said, both are safe and both are effective forms of bringing babies into this life, into this world rather. It just depends on the patient's background and the pregnancy history, which determines which route is safer. Personally, I've had two C-sections and I'm scheduled for my next C-section in a few weeks and no one can tell me that I should have had a vaginal delivery with my daughter because my daughter was breached. And so there was no way I would ever put my child through the potential harm of having a vaginal delivery just to say I had a vaginal delivery, knowing that breach deliveries, nine times out of 10 babies do not make it through. And so I tell my personal story to say that it's on a case by case basis. I think there's a stigma surrounding C-sections because of lack of education. And unfortunately, some of the very educated people still have something to say about C-sections, but then that goes back to lack of knowledge when it comes to obstetrics. Because if you had the knowledge necessary to realize that some scenarios, a vaginal delivery is much riskier to the mom and to the baby, they'd realize that C-sections vaginal deliveries as long as mom and baby are healthy that's the most important thing so again it's just case by case basis both are safe even if you are a candidate for a vaginal delivery but you opt for a c-section that is your business nobody should make any woman feel like less of a mother for having a c-section because at the end of the day you gave birth to that baby you carry that baby for nine months and Trust you me, having a C-section is no walk in the park. But at the end of the day, if that's how my babies are going to get here safely, I'd have 100 C-sections. Right. Well, thank you so much for that advice. And so we're about to round up our conversation. And, you know, my story is exclusive to me, like I said. And I'm sure you must have dealt with all kinds of people, women with different stories and stuff like that. And I mean, even though I was going through all of this, I still kept a smile on my face. I was still hopeful. A lot of, like I said, a lot of people didn't really understand what I was going through. And, you know, you have all this small talk, especially in our community. You have all these people making insensitive remarks and stuff like that. So from your experience, especially on what you have seen women go through for all these years, what will you advise our community about in regards to, you know, just approaching young women or men struggling with for fertility issues in general. Give people grace because you don't know what they're going through. You don't know why they're dealing with what they're dealing with and how it's affecting them mentally and physically. And so just give people grace, give them the support that they need. Don't give unsolicited advice and just be there for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Equo. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And it was an honor to share my story. Thank you. It was an honor to share my story with you. And thank you for giving all this helpful insight. I hope that, you know, this conversation can also encourage other women who have gone through a similar experience to know that they are not alone and that there is always a rainbow at the end of every storm. 
And I just hope that we can be more sensitive to one another as a community as a whole. And I hope that this will also motivate other women to share their stories, whether with me or with their, within their circles. But hopefully it definitely sparks a, a conversation and let us know that, you know, people go through so much behind the scenes that we know nothing about. And like you said, to offer our people grace. So thank you so much. And I'll definitely thank you. And I'll definitely put your information, contact information in the show notes. We already had that in the previous episode so i just want to thank you for taking that time to speak with me today and i will catch you in the next episode absolutely you're welcome bye that's it for today thank you for listening to our show if you want to participate in the show or find out more helpful resources then visit www.livingafricanpodcast.com for more information or email us at hello at livingafricanpodcast.com also don't forget to connect with us on all social media platforms at living african podcast you can also connect with anyo directly on facebook or instagram at Anyo Fombard. Thanks again for listening and let's not forget to be more understanding and nicer to one another.